everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this special webcast brought to you by Tamil Culture. My name is Jessica J. Sudhasan. I'm an employment lawyer at DLA Piper Canada here in Toronto and the occasional host of talks hosted by Tamil Culture where we chat with members of the Tamil community about issues of relevance and concern to the Tamil diaspora worldwide. Um, I'm joining you right now from the safety of my home here in Toronto and uh, I hope you guys are all sitting comfortably in your living rooms for uh, what I think should be a very interesting discussion uh, with three members of the Tamil diaspora who have very keen insights on the particular topic that we're going to be chatting about today. So what are we chatting about today? Um, as I'm sure everyone knows, we're about two months in um, into a global pandemic brought on by COVID-19. Uh, it's had devastating effects on the economy and on people's livelihoods around the world. And for families in Sri Lanka, um, trying to make a living under the government-imposed curfew that was brought on in response to COVID-19, times have been particularly tough. So the good news is that in response, there's been an outpouring of initiatives organized by individuals and small groups and organizations from the town community that have tried to bring some relief to those in need back home. However, charitable organizations or charitable initiatives in the Tamil community and in general, whether they're organized informally by individuals or groups or whether they're organized by larger organizations, do have issues around accountability and transparency. People understandably want to know where their money is going and who it is helping. So the main goal of this discussion today is to help all of you watching at home think about how you can make good decisions about where your hard-earned money is going and where you donate and what cause you're donating to. What should you expect in return from organizations or groups or individuals who solicit your charitable donations and how can you hold them accountable um, so that you can be assured that they're doing exactly what they said they would do with your money. These are questions that I personally had myself and I'm certainly no expert on the topic but I do have uh, three individuals uh, with me who do have expertise on this. So uh, I'm happy to have them with me here. I'm gonna introduce them. I have Abarna Raj, uh, I have Dr. Mira Patmaraja, and Kumran Nabasin, and I'll introduce them each in turn. Uh, and I'll start with you. Dr. Mira Patmaraja is a co-founder of Visions Global uh, Empowerment, an international education organization working to enable social change for youth affected by poverty, conflict and disability through education, leadership, and technology. Mira holds a master's in international education policy from the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a doctorate in international education from Teachers College, Columbia University. She currently works as the education director for an e-learning initiative called TAB School, and she's joining us from Southern California. All right, next we have with us Abarna Raj. Abarna uh, is the founding director of Palmyra and has set up and assisted numerous social businesses in Sri Lanka and in Cambodia. In her role, she has also been responsible for the development of fundraising strategies and continues to work and engage a network of volunteers to deliver Palmyra's ambitious social objectives. She was formerly a strategy consultant with Social Venture Australia. Prior to that, she held the role of sustainability, diversity, and safety at Leighton Holdings. And Abarna joins us from Sydney. Hello, Abarna. All right, last but certainly not least, we have Kumran Basin. Kumran is an Ontario public servant, entrepreneur, and founding chair of Comduit. He has a lengthy track record of community animation for which he was named a 2018 Diverse City Fellow by the Civic Action Leadership Foundation. He has a Bachelor of Arts uh, in English and Psychology from the University of Toronto and an Executive Certificate in Strategic Public Management from the Schulich School of Business at York University. And Kumran joins us from Toronto and I should have said Abarna joins us from Sydney. So thank you all for joining us. How's everybody doing? 
Doing well. Doing good. Great. Doing good. Everybody all set up at home. I'm sure we've all been set up at home for several months now, so this should be nothing new, hopefully. Just another Zoom meeting today. Just another Zoom meeting. One of many. One of yeah. many. Feels like, feels like it. <laughs> all right. So again, thanks for being here with us, everyone. Um, before we get into this, uh, quite a large discussion, what can be a large discussion about transparency and accountability um, and the future of NGO work in Sri Lanka. I want to learn a bit more about each of your own organizations. So uh, specifically what, uh, what I want to know and I think what the listeners and watcher uh, viewers at home want to know is where your organization's work is focused uh, geographically or regionally in Sri Lanka, uh, why your organization, organization was formed, what its mandate is, and your organization's current initiatives and projects. So I'll start with you, Mira. Sure. Thank you, uh, Jessica, for this opportunity and to Tamil Culture also. Visions Global Empowerment has a mission to enable social change through education, leadership, and technology. So our mandate is to build people's capacities so that they become empowered with skills and succeed and move forward in their lives. And really what we've learned is that if you systematically do this, uh, that is build people's capacities, especially by working with them over a number of years, then you not only empower that individual, but you also invigorate institutions. Because when you empower an individual, it has a ripple effect in families, societies, and communities. So uh, our work has been grounded in that aspect of, of really uh, people-centered development. And our work is currently an, ha operating in Jaffna and Batagalo. But in the past, we've also worked in Trincomalee, Kalinochi, and we did do a large infrastructure project in Colombo. And just to, I mean, the, the three umbrellas that define our work are education, leadership, and technology. Um, just to give you a global picture of visions, we operate in four countries, in Sri Lanka, India, Ethiopia, and Nicaragua. And since 2003, we've spent um, $9 million, upwards of $9 million globally, all on educational programs and projects. Um, I should mention that a large chunk of that has been spent recently in Nicaragua, where we're working on a large scale, scale project with the philanthropist. Uh, awesome. But um, in Sri Lanka specifically, we've, we've spent a little over half a million dollars on various programs and that impact has been has reached uh, approximately 18,000 individuals. Fantastic. I, Fantastic. One more thing to note is that our primary uh, target, I guess, beneficiaries are youth, teachers, and uh, staff of organizations. And so Sri Lanka is our only country where we don't have a country office. It's uh, uh, the country where we work purely through partners. And in the last 16 years, we've worked with over two dozen partners. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mira. Um, okay, Abarna, why don't you tell us a bit about Palmera? Thank, thanks for this opportunity. Um, so Palmera is um, head office in Australia and similar to um, Visions work in Sri Lanka, we work with local partners in Sri Lanka. It was a strategic decision to do that so we could build local kind of leadership and local structures. Uh, our mandate and our vision is to um, enable economic inclusion. So we're really about ensuring that farmers especially you know many of the poor live in rural communities that they have access to a living income which is increasingly difficult these days as many people in farming communities 
work off seasonal labour, so uncertain income or garment factories where there's very low income paid. So the social enterprises that we set up, the social businesses, the, the, the farming communities that we set up enables women, men, families to earn an income with the dignity, respect and meeting all their, their needs, um, looking after their children, their, their environmental sustainability, so it's a holistic approach. Um, our work really centres in the village and what we find is that what is needed is a holistic approach to break down all the barriers that prevent the poor from earning income. It's, it's multi-dimensional. It's not, it's not singular. It's not if they get a cow, then everything will be fine. If they have access to finance, everything will be fine. So we take a systems approach in how we work. We have been operating um, in Sri Lanka since the tsunami, the 2005 Boxing Day tsunami, as a volunteer-based organisation. In the last six years, we've established as, as a staffed organisation. Um, our impact is now in, in the order of about 20,000 people. So we're working across the north and the south and the east. We've scaled rapidly over the last five, six years since we've kind of established ourselves as a, as a staffed organisation. Um, our work in, is, is in Sri Lanka. However, we provide technical support in Bangladesh and Nepal through other charities. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Varna. Okay, Kumran, let's hear about Comduit. Thank you, uh, Jess. I probably have the least to say when there's Visions and Palmera in the room because uh, we continue to learn a lot from both those organizations. Uh, just incredible work that they do. And it's something that I tell my team all, all the time that we need to step up to the standards that Palmera and Visions have uh, set up all of us uh, just globally, right? So, um, Calm do it. Um, I think every story begins with an intensely personal experience. Um, I spent uh, about three months uh, in Kalinichi in 2002 uh, when I was an undergraduate student at the UFT. Um, and that experience of working on the ground, uh, working with multiple um, or people and organizations and having that direct person-to-person -person contact, um, I think left a deep impression in my own life in terms of the kind of work that I want to do back home. Um, and really, I mean, it's a long journey, but to sort of cut it short in 2013, so about seven years ago, we set up Conduit as a pilot with um, two sort of, I think, objectives in mind. One, uh, well, there's one objective in mind. It's to become a, a, a sustainable, trusted um, facilitator or bridge between the diaspora and homeland communities. Um, and, uh, and the way we wanted to go about doing that is we really felt that um, when it comes to charity, at least in Canada, it's a very crowded marketplace. Um, there are tons of organizations, whether it's old boys associations, old girl associations, village councils, um, you know, all kinds of different charity organizations. What was missing in the conversation, uh, we felt, was the whole idea around technical assistance, um, especially as a new generation grows up in the diaspora who are ethnically um, Tamil or Tamil speaking. Um, they're also in multiple sectors, multiple verticals in Canada, and there's a lot of knowledge um, capital that's untapped uh, when it comes to sustainable wealth and back home. So it's about how do we now then create a new path um, or forge a new sort of um, uh, prong um, in terms of diaspora engagement back home through the lens of sustainable development. The second aspect of it is really to try and tell um, as nuanced a story about back home. When we speak about back home, it's not a monolith. There are so many nuances in terms of the communities, even within one village. Um, you know, there are uh, different socioeconomic um, sort of, you know, lenses, different regional uh, issues and so on. So how do we make sure that we tell the multiple stories? There is no single story about back home. And the best way to tell those stories is for us to actually be there 
to the extent that we can and meet as many people on the ground and work with as many different voices and different people on the ground. So over the past um, seven years, and we're a completely volunteer-run organization. I won't tell you our budget because it's quite embarrassing given the numbers that I've heard so far and in terms of impact. But, but I think, um, you know, in the past um, five years, we've sent about uh, 25 to 30 young professionals. So these are urban planners, doctors, lawyers, social workers, educators. And the main idea is for them to go back and spend at least a month, a, min a minimum a month, which is really nothing. We try and push that for longer to live and work directly with community organizations serving vulnerable populations back home in the North and East, but increasingly vulnerable groups just throughout Sri Lanka. Fantastic. Thank you, Cameron. Um, okay. So I was hoping first that we can just sort of set the stage for everybody about, you know, what's happening back home. So, uh, you know, specifically, what is the current state of charitable work in Sri Lanka from your lens? Uh, what works? What doesn't work? What are the issues? And particularly now in light of COVID-19, um, what does the situation look like for families back home? Um, Abarna, I'm going to throw this one to you. You talked about, you know, working in the village. So um, what are what are families back home um, saying right now? What are they experiencing? What are they feeling? We've just had the curfews lifted in the in many of the regions where we work, which is more the rural areas. Obviously, the, the main urban areas are still under curfew, and there's been there's been a real relief because of course buyers now can access market actors can now come into the areas. A lot of people who sell you know fruit and vegetables these things don't store for very long they need to have quick access to the market so there's 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 been a lot of relief so that people can get back into doing work because many people don't have safety nets um you know just in general one, one of your points in how the diaspora is engaging you know during the relief time and, and just before and even now how they're thinking about relief I, I think there's always a burning platform when something like COVID happens you know we have to give money and give money now and do a handout and and, and that is really needed. That is really important where people do not have food. These times are, are, are all are, are kind of, uh, there's, it's, there's a period of time where that is needed, where that handout is critical. However, over the longer period of time, if those handouts are sustained, you can have very adverse impacts on people. It creates a dependency. It also can create a lot of community conflict because maybe a neighbour is being given a handout, but then the, the other neighbour is not being given a handout. So what happens in the diaspora community sometimes is uh, different groups um, may, if sustained for too long, the handout approach can have a lot of adverse impacts. And I think that's where organizations that have a longer term view of development, um, it's very important to engage with those types of organizations so that um, things can be done with minimal community conflict and as well their longer term view of how they're gonna kind of stand back on their feet. I think the diaspora has a tendency to say, I gave $10, I want to know where that $10 went. And so I want to know, did it, buy, did it go towards a cow? Did it go towards a chicken? Did it go, and that's kind of not how development works. When we look at system changes, we need to look at a holistic approach. And that's why Palmar is set up. We found that Diaspora generally didn't give like that. Mm -hmm. They tended to give one-to-one. -one. And I don't think Sri Lanka's in a point now, whether it was post-war, post any natural disaster or now post-COVID where that approach is really going to lead to the long-term uplifting of these communities. Mm -hmm. um, Kumran, just following up on that, so it's understandably, like you said, uh, Abarna, you know, the need right now is immediate in light of COVID-19. So there is a time and place for that, that handout to address 
specific uh, immediate needs. But um, so lar even larger than that, just expanding the question broadly, is the current state of charitable work in Sri Lanka, even beyond COVID-19, do you, Kumran, do you feel that it's still very much a handout by handout kind of approach? Um, I, I think that's probably a little bit more progression in terms of the charitable sector in Sri Lanka than, than we like to think of uh, from the diaspora or give credit for. Um, but, I, uh, but there are a couple of things. I mean, I personally felt that there are two points I want to make in terms of this question, uh, Jess. One is, I think um, the long-standing issues that sort of impact the sector, whether it's in Sri Lanka or it, whether the way the diaspora gives or has given in the past, I don't think the fundamental issues have really changed as a result of COVID-19. I think COVID-19 just amplifies those kinds of issues. So even in sort of like, you know, we ran a fundraiser campaign uh, to Abarnath's point, um, I think people are so used to giving um, sort of emotionally and spontaneously that it was a runaway success for us. Uh, but just from, from behind the scenes, as much as we could, we tried to really sort of cut down on existing problems that sort of rose to the top which is you know duplication uh, lack of coordination um, lack of transparency sometimes uh, you know intercommunal community conflicts that Aburna pointed to so all of these things happen so I felt I feel as Aburna has said that uh, the kind of giving that we saw during COVID-19 um, and, and those kinds of things just amplify the issue and we really need to focus on the long-term sustainable piece um, and, and that's got to do equally with how we in the diaspora rethink giving and, and I think it's inevitable this is going to happen because there's a new generation coming up that are not, you know, that didn't go to St. John's or St. Patrick's or Burnbury or any of these places. They are looking at a really, um, you know, hardcore, what's the return on investment? Like I've lost track of the conversations I had on Instagram with people messaging me saying like, so what's the return on investment? What can I expect to see in terms of reporting? And and we welcome that. Like that that's exactly where this is going to go. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it, it, for me, it was sort of a wake up call to really kind of double down on everything that we were doing prior to COVID-19 from an organizational perspective and really like build on that for the next four years as part of our new strategic plan. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I would I would just echo the fact that COVID-19 just amplifies existing issues, um, yeah. which part of that is this charitable giving like Abarna's point cannot go on forever. We really have to kind of make that pivot to uh, sustainable development and sustainable giving and, and return on investment in that sense. Mm -hmm. That's that's a great point um, because uh, like you said, I mean, even prior to COVID-19, the Tamil community has been very active in uh, charitable work and donating to a variety of causes uh, back home. Um, and some of those efforts, you know, they are organized on an individual level, whether it's just an individual to a group of people that are sending money back home, for example, uh, through a priest or through a church or through someone they trust, or whether that be through larger organizations uh, such as your own. Um, but regardless of the scale of that charitable effort, um, donating money for causes back home does create issues around transparency, the impact of that donation, accountability. Like you said, uh, um, but like you both said so far, um, people want to know where their $10 is going. And if 75 cents didn't go to it, where did that go? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of that. And I think, uh, I, I think part, like you, like you mentioned, Avarna, part of that might not be an understanding of what development long-term, uh, should would look like in Sri Lanka. Um, so I think, you know, common questions that people do have when they're donating is, I mean, how do I know that my money reached its intended cause? Um, how much of my donation went directly to that cause and didn't get lost, an example, for overhead? Um, should should people be informed of that if it was going to overhead? And where can they get all that information? So um, go ahead, Arvanaya. I think one of the things that we've tried to do is sometimes those conversations 
can make it very challenging for an organization to operate. You know, so what we've tried to do in Palmyra is have people understand how Palmyra works. So the conversation isn't at that micro level, that they trust the organization, they understand what the organization stands for, that we, we you know, if we don't hire good people, we're not going to do good work. So we try to create relationships where people understand that this is why we have the people overheads. You know, overheads is what you need to operate. If you don't have, you know, we collect, data. Yeah. we collect impact data on our phone. That's how we can report very quickly and efficiently. Therefore, we need to buy a tablet so data can be collected quickly. A tablet costs money. There needs to be offline and online solutions. So if we just spend every single dollar in the delivery, then it's not going to be an effective delivery. So I think the conversation overheads is, is an important one. But what we've tried to do at Palmyra is try to have our donors understand who we are as an organisation, what we stand for and how we give. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think it's important where people, when people give to look at the projects that they give to, but also look at the organisation who they, give, who they give through. And they may not like an organisation like Palmyra. And that's okay because that might not kind of meet what their giving expectations are. And so I think it's important for organisations to not be, um, you know, too worried about doing good work and meeting the donor's needs, but putting the, the development work first and doing what it takes to have good development and finding the donors who understand that. And that's kind of what we've done with our fundraising strategies. Mm-hmm. Mira, um, how would you say your organization deals with those kind of questions? I'm sure you get them too. Um, how do you address them? How do you respond to people that want to know where their money's going? Yeah, I share what Aparna said as far as uh, this need to recognize that any strong operation or organization is going to have some level of overhead. And I think the more you see diaspora organizations coming into being, the more they are hopefully will recognize that you you can't always expect this to be done on a volunteer capacity. Um, So what we do, I mean, we take accountability very seriously and uh, we have our ways of reporting. So, you know, quarterly newsletters go out, annual reports happen in every donor. It's it's not unusual that you'll hear directly from a scholarship student who sends an email to our our donors. We try to um, you know, provide those pictures and so on. The challenge, one of our challenges in specifically t- for Visions has been that both myself and um, Greg, the co-founder of Visions, have been denied visas to Sri Lanka for the last, uh, since the end of the war. So our um, presence on the ground has been limited and therefore we've had to rely on our partners to send us the pictures. And uh, I think uh, because the NGO world is still uh, in, in, in so many ways growing, the understanding about donor reporting and the need for p- pictures and sending reports on time and so on, and also a lack of capacity in terms of bandwidth, um, has, it's been a challenge, certainly a challenge. But I think, uh, you know, like Aparna said, a lot of times donors give to a project because they have a connection to it. And uh, if, if you were to review, uh, I think, Vision's uh, overall history, I hope that we would present as a credible organization. And if you are so inclined to give to, to an organization that's purely focused on education and empowerment, then um, you know, try out an organization because you would never know until you give in and feel that experience of being a donor. You mentioned having to do um, the majority of your groundwork through partners. Are those partners local organizations in Sri Lanka? Are they um, other NGOs? Or... Right. So it's a mix of uh, other NGOs 
uh, also um, schools, in institutions, and and then um, we, in the last decade, we've partnered heavily with uh, uh, Church of Americans Law and Mission, which I'm sure many in Toronto are familiar with, uh, Darshanam Balavanar, who's involved in that. And um, we worked with him on uh, after-school care projects for a good five years and saw a lot of strong um, results, some ch children from villages who were passing the O-level in villages that had never had such results um, and just scores improving across the board. But because of a lack of um, real kind, I think, you know, visibility in terms of um, donors were not meeting that need. And I think one of the challenges is that there's a heavy focus on wanting to give towards projects based in Jaffna. And we've faced that here in um, the US among our donors as well. Um, somehow our projects in, with uh, CACM have not always um, gained traction. So we, we did um, withdraw our funding or end our funding after five years of supporting the after school programs. Um, but we are supporting right now a, a women's empowerment program with CACM and it, um, it, it's a really incredible program that I, I think if people were to look into it, you know, it, I'm sure it would speak to many people. So um. I think, uh, the conversation about working with partners um, in Sri Lanka, for example, Comduit, I, I know Coomer and Comduit released an appeal for vulnerable communities in Sri Lanka. Um, and you also released uh, an appeal that listed other organizations in Sri Lanka uh, that people could reach out to. So um, how does your work with those smaller organizations look like? What does it look like? You know, I'd like to sit here and, and tell you a story, Jess, about how just perfect it is and how we have these objective measures of partnership and all of that. None, none of that is the case. Um, it is still very much a trial and error method um, on our part, and I would say on, on the part of many organizations in terms of finding the right partner fit. Um, when we began, we began uh, through the age-old sort of tradition of trusted networks. We went with people that um, had a track record um, in terms of the work that they were doing already. Um, you know, just you know, just having a, an organization sort of asking questions about a local partner from different vantage points, and if you hear a consistent narrative about an organization, then I think more or less um, it's a pretty good organization for us to work with. Um, ideally, though, we would like to get to a place where you know, um, I you know, I I'm a romantic at heart. Uh, and an optimist, uh, maybe foolhardy sometimes. But I think ideally, if we can, you know, as especially the sort of the next generation of uh, organizations in the diaspora working back home, to come up with a unified sort of partnership criteria um, and unified sort of organizational sort of strategies and, and frameworks, um, you know, um, that we can then um, get um, participants in Sri Lanka to subscribe to as well, then I can, I think we'll get closer and closer to an objective understanding of who's doing what, where is the help needed, who can take on what issue and so on. Um, so at this point, uh, our partnership model is evolving. I'll, I'll grant you that much, but it's still very much a sort of a trusted network um, you know, who's doing what and where, what's their track record in this work and, and kind of go from there. Um, the one thing I do want to point out though is, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't um, necessarily sort of, you know, look on trusted partnerships as sort of kind of in, in a disdainful kind of man manner because it sometimes works. Um, you know, a year ago, uh, a few of us put together a simple thing, a WhatsApp group that really kind of brought together uh, 
organizations in Australia, Canada, the UK, and the US um, who are working sort of on the charity development side of things. And, and for me, it was really kind of nice to understand what kind of impact that can have. Because when COVID-19 happened, like there were conversations that happened in that WhatsApp group, we caught like duplication that was happening. Um, there was an opportunity to kind of do work in an entirely different community that a few people in the group were interested in. So we kind of branched out and had a conversation about that. Um, so I think that kind of coordination and increased coordination in the diaspora and then kind of having those kinds of expectations or a common set of expectations uh, uh, that we then have of local partners will also help us, I think, in the long run. I don't even know if I answered the question, but trusted partnerships. Trust partnerships. I got it. <laughs> this kind of needs to the next uh, question I had too, because like, you know, like I mentioned, um, on the community level, on an individual level, there are just sports teams and small groups of people that have gotten together um, that I've seen here in Toronto, uh, particularly to address the need um, that's resulted from COVID-19. Um, and, you know, their efforts are very informal, um, understandably so. So what is what would you uh, say to those individuals or those groups that want to be able to be accountable to uh, their uh, their contributors want to be transparent but maybe don't have the resources or aren't formally set up to hand over a spreadsheet um, should someone ask how, how can they create that accountability that transparency uh, Barna, I'll put that one to you one of the things that Palmer has done is we've created on our website a crowdfunding page where people who are um, groups who fundraise, of which there are many all through globally and, and in Australia. And actually we raise about, I would say 20% of our funds this way, where people go up onto our website, they then set up a page if they're doing a sporting event, if they're doing a birthday, we call it do-it-yourself campaign. You know, it's really simple, it's really easy. We make the front end, we give you a link, people can, they get their tax receipts, we manage all the back end for you. So that means they, they, they have the confidence that we have accreditation, we have the structures in place that they know where their money's going to, we've designed the project uh, in the right way. They select their own projects. So our website has two different crowdfunding project uh, platforms, one where you can load your page and one where you can select the project that you want. If you're interested in more women-focused, more child-focused, and what we found is we, we started to get some traction on this. Um, there is sometimes people are getting used to working in a collaborative way like this. Um, the thought of maybe an Australian organisation giving to another Australian organisation that then gives to a Australian organisation, it's kind of changing that, that chain of events that normally occurs. But what we're trying to establish is, is that there is a role for in order to create that transparency, it's very difficult if you're a fundraising organization that doesn't have the time or the expertise to then work with a local organization and expect from them the things that one would expect. At Palmera, we have budget for capacity development, we have budget and teams and experts that can support in the monitoring and evaluation, write the reports in a way that someone in the Western world would want to see a report, which is very difficult and adds a lot of cost to local partners when you create that expectation. The local partners to be, needs to be on the field. That's their expertise, localization, designing solutions, getting them behind a computer writing English with the right words and the photo in the right way and the positioning of the photo. That's not their skill, they're not marketers, you know? And so I think it's easier for a Palmera to do that than to expect the local partner to do that. So we're really trying to grow this and trying to kind of have people rethink what is their role? You know, is it a fundraising role? Is it a programming role? Is it a working 
indirectly which Sri Lanka role and trying to have that type of conversation with organizations and, and it seems to be working well. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you've created something of a network of accountability through with while working through these smaller organizations. I mean, they can, they arguably are somehow uh, a little bit can, they can say that they're somehow more credible or more transparent or, or accountable through an organization like Palmera by working through an organization like Palmera. If I may add something to what Alberna said, I mean, to go back to your question, Jess, I mean, my, my hypothesis, at least at this point, is the kind of giving that you asked about, um, the smaller groups um, with its, you know, old student associations or village councils and all that, that I think is going to die out, um, uh, you know, unless you have what, you know, kinds of the things that Alberna is doing. I mean, I can't speak for all the diasporas. I can only also can't speak for the Canadian diaspora, but I have a little bit more familiarity with it. I, I think that generation is just going to fade away. Um, and I think the opportunity, and this is why I think there is a place for all of us in the value chain, and, and this is not a shameless plug for Comduit, maybe it is. But I think um, the opportunity for us with Comduit is how do we kind of refresh or re renew the relationship that people have uh, to uh, the land back home um, you know because they didn't go to those schools they were they weren't born in those villages so like how do we make that conversation uh, sort of stick with the next generation and I think I'm of the firm belief that uh, and this is biased because of my own experience is that um, I think there is a need to go back um, and to understand where you come from, what your heritage is, what your history is. Um, and I think Tamil identity and, and, and identity to that country, uh, despite as many flaws, uh, consistent flaws and persistent flaws, is crucial. Uh, because I, I think once you get that sort of, uh, sort of affinity uh, to understand where you come from, then the opportunity to give back and shape a different narrative in terms of giving to organizations like Palmera or Visions or whoever just becomes even more stronger. But I think the model as it is, as it stands now, um, should no one go back, should no one actually take an active interest and, and see what's going on, it would mean there's going to be a very deep drop in donor giving. Um, unless, of course, you have COVID-19. And that's the worst way to think about this, right? Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have to have a humanitarian disaster to be then be able to kind of like give, right? So mm -hmm. I really, I, you know, you know, whether it's, you know, I'm just throwing out names, right? Like whether it's the Kare Nagar village, Ondriam, Urundriam, or I don't know, Cookville Hindu College, like those organizations uh, with respect to their membership and the way they give, it's going to become obsolete in the next 10 years. And that's being charitable on my part. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point, Kumran, because- um, I agree though. <laughs> let's hear it. <laughs> I mean, I've seen, you know, these organizations, now, for the, since the time of the war, when they were sending out relief, um, it, you see these groups and they're still sending out the backpacks and um, providing food relief during COVID. And, and there's this, uh, this sentiment that I don't think is the children who have been born here in, in the West. It's people who have spent some time there, have made it out here professionally. And um, that's, that sentiment is strongly there. And I'm always heartened when I see that so much activity is happening. Um, I don't see them as competitors. I see them as potential collaborators. And uh, the only missing issue is that we're not aware of so many things that are happening. And I think that's something that perhaps our generation could figure out is better ways of coordinating and so that we have visibility to all the different things that are happening and that we can then leverage work and, and, and connect people. But, um, you know, for example, Ramoshin is uh, a guy here in, in, in the Bay Area 
who uh, has started a company and um, Vetri Holdings. Vetri Holdings has then employed people in Jaffna to um, create a, a, a local company there. Arogya Life is one of them. So visions, you know, these are kind of smaller um, individuals that have created a, now a company out there. And there's kind of a partnership that's happening where visions has supported scholarships for students to attend coding camps and then find employment in his company. And that's the kind of um, networking. If it could ha happen more, then we could you know, make use of all of our, yeah, our connections. And um, I, I, I agree, Kumran, that in, in uh, probably 20 to 30 years, we might see a, a reduction of this. But to me, the desire to give back is alive and well, especially among those who you know, are, are our age, but they spent some time living in Sri Lanka. I think that's the key point, you know, that you just made. Um, have they spent that time in Sri Lanka? Because I think there's an interesting nuance you brought, which I agree with, which I think there is an sort of, inter like, very broadly put, there's an intersection with class here, right? Like, um, in terms of, like, um, the, the people who are part of, like, some of the village-owned dreams and all of that, their sort of um, the diaspora journey and their trajectory in terms of their immigration journey is quite different from people who then went to schools in Colombo or Peradeniya or Morotoa or Jaffna and then immigrated for work reasons to the U.S. or Canada or Australia. I think those people, having lived and also sort of, you know, spent time, uh, will keep giving, as you said. And Emotion is a wonderful example of that. I'm very impressed with Emotion and uh, the, way, the way he does work. Um, but, but I think if, if you look at the generation that fled um, outsiders refugees from Sri Lanka who came to places like Toronto, I think more like to places like Toronto, um, and then they, you know, they kind of joined their, as, as, as part of sort of social cohesion, they joined their village councils or they went to their old you know, schools and all of that. Um, will that generation, I, I'm, I'm speaking about that generation and have they, how will their kids then kind of take that on? Um, but, but, you know, I take the, but there is, there are nuances here for sure. I'll just jump in there because I, I do think, you know, whether it's the generation past or the generation present, uh, a lot of our identity as a Tamil diaspora from Sri Lanka is uh, very much linked to the civil war. And I think a lot of people's want and need to, uh, to give back and do something back home is very linked to that. So, um, you know, even in the midst of COVID-19, um, the, the needs that have, that the war has presented are still very much present. You know, it's the wars ended 11 years ago and uh, families are still struggling uh, with that. And the reason I bring that question up is because there's obviously a lot of work that needs to be done, um, yes, with COVID, but also to support those uh, war-affected individuals back home. Um, and this is kind of tied to, you know, people's political ideologies about the conversation around what charitable giving looks like back home, the politics around charitable giving. Um, what does support look like uh, back home? Um, kind of, this is kind of a loaded question in a lot of ways, I, and I acknowledge that, but, you know, what does that quote unquote support look like in light of the varying ideologies and, uh, and, and, you know, and opinions that people have um, on giving back home? Um, Abarna, I'll put that one to you. You know, I think this once again links to the organization you're connected with. 
Palmyra is a non-political, non-religious organization. We don't support any local partners that have a religious agenda or a political agenda. You know, we don't support anything that's linked to, even during this COVID, we have elections coming up uh, in Sri Lanka. So a lot of giving, uh, whether people knew it or not, was linked to people who were trying to promote um, their campaign because, you know, by giving out um, food at this time, we would promote their campaign. Palmyra asked a lot of questions around that. And, you know, we've been, we started up during the war, we were heavily criticised by the language we use, the way we look and feel, um, because we take this stance. Um, why do we do it? We do it because we are trying to tap an audience. We're not trying to take from the existing pool. We want to, we want to expand the pool. And at least in Australia, the pool, there is a big pool that do not want to be politically and religiously affiliated. If you do, don't come to our organisation. It's not the organisation to come to. There's another organisation that does have stronger political ideologies and that's the organisation to go to. I think, you know, we're working in an ecosystem and a landscape in the diaspora where we each can play a role and we each understand our role. Not everyone has to look like the other person. You know, we get so many criticisms because we don't use certain words and we're not like Tamil enough and you know and it, it, it's just the experience of Australian Tamils it's, it's a little bit different most uh, our donor base I would say 90% have never been to Sri Lanka mm. 60% probably don't want to go to Sri Lanka you know um, 40% are probably involved in, in interracial marriages and have a different type of identity so it, it's to say I, I will ask you if you, uh, just yes. just to put a question to you here but yeah um because, you know, like you said, Palmyra's work is very much systems oriented, you know, it is about, um, it is about the long term effect of, um, of your, of the work that you're doing. Does, it, doesn't that necessarily like even a little bit tie into politics, a little back home? Oh, it does. It does. But it's a different type of politics. Mm -hmm. For us, it's about strengthening people's voice. It's about having people have rights. It's about people working in mobilized communities so that they don't feel fear to stand up to whether it be a government official or whether it be a market actor, whether it be a buyer who's trying to take advantage of them. That's what's disintegrated. So that grassroots kind of people feeling confident and knowing how to express themselves, you know, in the recent um, elections when they increased the quota of women to 25%, many of people in our program were asked to stand for election because they had had the training and the confidence, they knew what they stand for, but we don't tell them what to stand for. Mm. You know, it's giving those base skills back, getting rid of that fear, but Palmyra doesn't have a political ideology that we are trying to push in every mm. program that we're trying to do. And that's the important piece about Palmyra, but that's not to say that's the right thing, it's just that that's what we stand for. So donors, when they give, should really understand the organization what the organization stands for and not trying to make every organization be the same because i think that was the challenge of the giving in the past and the older generations there was kind of like you had to fit in the box and i think there's an opportunity now that there could be a lot of different types of boxes mm -hmm. in the ecosystem right um i think that's a lot of people struggle with deciding where to give or you know like whether they can feel good about giving you know um that 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 uncertainty about what it might be tied to, whether they know it or not. But what they, I think a lot of people want to give without necessarily being tied to some sort of political ideology. But um, as it is in our town community, sometimes these things touch on each other without us fully intending it. So, um, Kruman, I know you've uh, you've definitely had opinions on this, and uh, people have had things to say in response. So, uh, if you don't mind, Kruman, I'm gonna just 
paraphrase uh, oh, good God. A, a Facebook post <laughs> that, uh, that you had posted, which I think is very- In a non-conduit capacity, but I understand the responsibility of visibility as well, so. Okay, I'm, I'll paraphrase it. So I'm gonna short it down a little bit, but you said, I have no desire to shed any crocodile tears this week as I remain critical today, as I was since I was a teenager of the inherent contradictions flaws and convenient jingoism of the policy framework underpinning armed militancy within Tamil nationalism. But I thought I'd ask a question of my well-intentioned community colleagues, homegrown activists, now parachuting in from other places and spontaneous Instagram hacktivists. When do you plan to raise your voice publicly and push for legal redress against those Canadian citizens who became overnight millionaires in our community on May 18th, 2009? Or is it too inconvenient to individual and organizational, political, social, and economic ambitions uh, or is the web of family and friends, social media, and the dinner dance gala circuit too restrictive for you? For those who <laughs> have the context, quite a pointed post. For those without the context, you might have to explain it. So tell us, give us, a, give us your thoughts briefly. What, what, what were you thinking when, when you said that? Um, I, I think that that post uh, came at the end of a very tiring month. Uh, I probably should have reflected on that before I posted it, but I think it comes um, after kind of seeing really how challenging it can be sometimes um, to get people to donate money uh, for even charitable work back home. Um, and to also then see as you give money back home, just sort of the web of um, interplay between diaspora actors and influence, and you know, I'm just as much a part of that, and how it sort of you know, permeates and, 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 and impacts on the ground. Uh, you know, this is sad to say, and I, I leave out names and all of that, but, but in one of the provinces, we picked a, a very sort of vulnerable group um, that has also become highly politicized, I think, uh, because of, you know, issues around transitional justice and so on over the last five years, especially. Um, and just to kind of get, you know, what, like, who's actually working on, you know, helping these families in this area? What is your organization doing? I really had spent, like, tons of, like, time on that. And that kind of really tells me that there's a lot of sort of, you know, interference, involvement, engagement in the diaspora that sometimes plays out in these ways that we don't anticipate. But the essential point that I was trying to make is there is, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And there is a report by the International Crisis Group, you know, save, save aside its own biases, where the number has been estimated, you know, at, at, on average around two to three billion US um, that's kind of sitting around, right? Probably even more. The point is, where is that money and how can we best tap into that um, to kind of help people back home? Even if we were to extend the argument that it was collected on, it was collected on the premise that this was meant to help Tamil speaking people especially gain autonomy in terms of political independence, economic independence and social independence. If that is the case, those outcomes for Tamil people in Sri Lanka are still a valid thing today. So uh, be it the instrument of sort of achieving that objective or the pathway, you know, with the Tamil Tigers especially may have gone, but the realities of people, political, economic, and social realities still persist and the outcomes we want for them still persist. So why can't that money still be tapped into to get that? So the point was essentially about these people who I believe, and once again, you know, my Zoom says comment, but I'm, you know, we'll see how this plays out. But, but, but I think my point is like, what responsibility do these, people have, mostly individuals and business leaders have in making sure that we at least give a percentage of that money that is still hidden in terms of assets 
that the Tamil community gave and a lot of people gave, and it's not just, and not to pick, you know, not to like pick on Mira, it's not just rich doctors in the US who gave that money or rich, you know, whatever engineers in the US. It's like the working class in Toronto gave money. Working class in like Sydney and Melbourne gave money. So there is a, there's an obligation, I think, that we as a community have to question where that money is and how do we get that money and to really make that money count for what it was collected in the first place for. That's a lot Anybody of have a response stuff. to that? that they want I to... may have to go into hiding after this. But... <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, well, here's a question for all of you that just sprung to my mind have with, uh, after hearing Coomer. Do you think our generation, um, this generation that's presently in the West, uh, maybe born here or moved here very young, are we sort of becoming more and more disconnected to, to the need back home um, beyond that immediate giving to put food on the table uh, kind of donation? Are we, are we losing sight of that systemic, um, that system sort of development uh, that Sri Lanka still needs as we become more successful here in the West and become more preoccupied with our own lives? Are, are you noticing that trend, anyone? I mean, I think that, I think for Australia, it's, it's, in some ways it's easy to raise money, in some ways it's very difficult to raise money. We have, a, I think, a less crowded marketplace for, the, for our generation of giving. Um, so in some ways it's easier, but it's a very integrated community. A lot of people came here a long time ago. Um, so identity is very low. Um, the Sri Lankan Tamil community is a bit more of a passive community here. And in, in that, in order, they've, they've integrated very well to do well in their, in their careers. So kind of making their identity known, even if it's affiliating strongly with a Sri Lankan charity that has a lot of Tamil members in it, is something that they are worried about, I think. And while it may not be said, I think that identity is, the, the, the changing identity um, is uh, making it challenging to raise funds. It's quite interesting. There's a dynamic happening here in Australia where I feel like the people who are Tamil who are born in Australia feel very, almost stronger in their Tamil identity because no one can say you're not Australian because they're born in Australia. Well, those of us that were born in Sri Lanka, we're kind of like, oh, no, we're, we're actually not Australian. So <laughs> you're right, in a way. While there's, the Tamil Australians that are born in Australia, they're so confident in their Tamil identity, but the way they define their Tamil identity, what, what that means and how that expresses itself, I don't find it necessarily expresses itself through charitable giving in Sri Lanka, which is just one mode of expressing your Tamil identity. I think that link between... Just because you don't give doesn't mean you don't have a strong identity. You can have a strong identity. You can be involved in music and, you know, have visual representations that have a link to Tamil identity. A lot of people here wear the potu, you know, and things like that, that I think there wouldn't be many people in my generation that would be comfortable to do that necessarily. But here there's such a strong Tamil identity, but I think the link to the giving is what's gone here mm -hmm. in Australia. Mm -hmm. And how do we get that back? How do we create a burning platform? When Sri Lanka is being said in you know, in the global sphere that it is now an upper middle class country. How do we show that these systemic issues still exist in a way that people can understand it? And so that's, with, with being respectful to the people over there, because sometimes when I see that everyone is starving, you know, the headlines that come out during COVID in order to get the money, that's also not the right way to do it. So yeah. these are challenging things, I think. Mm -hmm. and I mean, Vera, you had a thought as well. Yeah. 
Yes, um, I, I just wanted to, it, what, Aparna, um, what Aparna was saying kind of sprang to mind. Visions was started as a volunteer organization uh, where we took international volunteers and we went and spent time in children's homes, literally in the same accommodation with, you know, we had our own rooms, but we spent time two weeks at a time, three weeks at a time. And it was such a transformative experience for all of the volunteers. And you hear this all the time uh, about volunteer organizations that, you know, have that cultural exchange piece. Um, but I think, you know, that's a program that Visions hopefully can revive in the future because that time on the ground spending even, you know, especially for people who have never been or spent that kind of time with disadvantaged children uh, or youth communities makes all the difference. Um, that's one point I wanted to make. And we still do that right now with our other countries. It's just Sri Lanka hasn't allowed for that. Um, uh, you had asked, is there a disconnect? Um, and I, I kind of strongly feel yes. Um, I mean, look at our dialogue today. The four of us, you know, we're living here. There's not a representative from Sri Lanka in this conversation about development in Sri Lanka. And I think um, there, there is a need to consistently try to understand what the needs and emotions of people in Sri Lanka, in, in Jaffna, in Kalanachi, in whichever area it is, do a lot of listening work, a lot of dialogue work, um, so that we can respond in a meeting, meaningful way, uh, and 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 rise to the to meet the the needs. Um, and we'll never go wrong with. Um, I mean, there's still in this 10, 10 years, 11 years after war still a need for people to find their next meal. Uh, and so that work has to happen. Uh, like I said earlier, coordination efforts need to improve. Um, but uh, as from an education perspective, what we've seen is, and COVID has brought this out, you have so many layers of disadvantage. Um, today, not having a laptop means you probably aren't, you know, you're not getting an education at the moment. And, and so those kind of, I guess, traditional handouts, we can also see in a kind of new form coming to, out today where handing out laptops, you're never gonna go wrong. Because imagine your life without a laptop today. You can't function, right? And, and the moment you give an individual, a youth, a, someone who's going to college, a laptop, you change their life forever. And, and we've done this now, we've handed, I mean, we've given technology. That's one of the things we want to prioritize and we do. Uh, especially to organizational leaders, laptops, PowerPoint projectors, uh, iPads. So all, all these tools go a long way in equipping um, mm -hmm. people. So if I, I think just uh, do a quick follow up, Jess. Um, sure. Like I couldn't agree more with me, uh, what Mira just said um, in terms of the disconnect. Uh, what I would offer though is I think disconnect is the best case scenario. Um, I think what is more prone to happen is the echo chamber effect. Um, where as a result of the disconnect, um, our ideas of what is needed back home and really pe the idea that people back home have of us, those ideas will just keep amplifying and growing. Um, and we kind of, and, and, and this is, I mean, not to make this all political all the time, but, but this is one of the reasons I, I really feel that 
uh, you know, sometimes we are kind of, you know, kind of we do navel gazing in terms of even sort of the political tra uh, trajectory of the Tamil sort of uh, situation, right? Because we don't have that relationship with what's going on back home. So, so, and this is one of the reasons why I think I feel very strongly um, as, as I did when we started Come Do It seven years ago, is as you increase the people to people connections and touch points, that exchange of information, uh, that exchange of communication and awareness is really going to lead to more robust, holistic, uh, informative, bi-directional exchanges and conversation that can help bring about new development outcomes and new political outcomes and new economic outcomes. Um, so um, I do think there is a disconnect, but but I don't think, uh, you know, and to go back to Varna's point, it's the same thing in Canada. The kids who will grow up here have a, a strong sort of affinity towards Tamil culture and identity, which is incredible. Uh, but the thing is, a lot of that is still kind of in many ways seen through a political lens and a specific political narrative. How do you make that more democratic and more open and more, um, how do I say, holistic, right? Like there are other, so how do we make sure that these young people as they are, want to understand their Tamil identity, know that there is no such thing as a Tamil identity. There is no singular story of that identity. And it's for each one of us to talk to as many people as we can on the ground and, and be in touch with as many people on the ground to understand and get what we want out of that for our own work in our life. Mm -hmm. I feel very strongly, but sorry, I had to interject on no, that, but I agree sure. with Mira in terms of the disconnect for sure. Yeah, great points all around. I think the, you know, obviously being on the ground, that in-person uh, connection is really important. Um, but I do think that can raise other questions and other issues. Uh, for example, the accusation that you might be uh, a brown savior, right? Um, someone who is from the West, quite well off, has done well for themselves and is now go, going back with, you know, um, idealistic views to change Sri Lanka for the better, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I think a lot of people's uh, concerns with maybe some programs might be that people come into the village, they do good work for a few months or a year, uh, and then they leave. And then what does that mean for the people back home in those villages that, like, like, like we all intended, built a relationship with those people, and then they left? Um, how does that look? You know, to your point, Abarna, you know, that children are starving headline, that's not a good headline either. Um, and sometimes I think uh, that, might, that might be the kind of headline that brown saviors, quote unquote, get accused of putting out there. So uh, has anyone been called a brown savior? Can I ask that? <laughs> Kuman is nodding vigorously. Okay. <laughs> oh, we we face those accusations all the time in terms of being a brown savior, right? How do you uh, how mean, do you respond to them? How do you yeah how do you address it? Short of like showing them the kind of work that we do before anyone gets on a plane at Pearson, there is no way to respond to that. People don't see the hard work that we do or the work that we do in preparing people for even getting on the plane to go back in the first place. They don't see the orientations that we have, the briefings that we have. Um, you know, the kinds of demands we place on people who are selected to go, the expectations we have of them once they come back in terms of debriefing and how they, um, you know, what expectations we have in terms of them continuing to engage. They don't see any of that. They see they go down. And this is one of the reasons why we've actually cut down on a lot of the social media photos and all of that stuff, because they can take a photo and they can make multiple narratives out of that. Um, but I think the Brown Savior Complex, I think, is, is more is generally a valid, I think, concern in terms of this kind of development work, right, in terms of how people come in and go out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think it's, you know, we've had uh, mixed results, like we've had people who, who we've sent um, who spend time and are still engaged and their work is amplified and they've managed to sort of get an understanding of 
their identity better and they you know they they're not even part of comedy anymore they, they some of them have even dissociated dissociated disassociated with comedy but it kind of triggered a thinking for them that i think has persisted in terms of other kinds of work that they want to do which which is great but then we've also had um uh, you know people who kind of went and came back and you know we haven't heard from them since then but i don't know i mean this is a conversation i've had with darshan all the time uh, you know who's a mentor and you know uh, mira knows him very well and he's one of our dear friends um and and one thing he he told me is you can't control that and it was a great lesson in being a dad uh, i guess for me an early lesson well, that sounds very patriarchal but uh, what i mean is you can only do so much to kind of make sure that you give people an opportunity to have an experience that is equitable and co-creative with local partners that you hope will stick with them and have a transformative effect either now or as in my case germinated you know in me for a very long time until i decided to express it in an organizational way many years later but you have no control of that outcome mm-hmm. uh, and you can only do what you can and then rest of it you really don't have any control over abarna how do you uh, you and palmera address that a concern or remain cognizant of it in your work you know i, I really applaud that comjure it started the organization they did because i think there's a real need for this but as comrade said you need to have the resources to manage it completely intended and palmara we decided that we didn't have it and so we had too many examples where we couldn't manage that intended process because we had the development work as well and so we decided to just to kind of not continue with the volunteer program and instead we do what we call a village experience which is a one week village immersion um and it is the people who give already and who are long term givers and we want to kind of develop that type of relationship they go into the village they stay in the village with the people for 5 days and that we found for us therefore we can um ensure they have a complete narrative even though they're there just for 5 days and they can go and be true ambassadors because they they've got the full picture they haven't just got one side of the picture Um, in Sri Lanka I think that there is a risk especially as people are now traveling back and forth you know they go to Kamma they go to Ainain they go they go to Jaffna they pass areas they see a couple of things and then they come and say a whole bunch of stuff you know so I think this is going to be an increasing risk now that there's increasing access to the area um and there's a lot of different narratives out there you know there's so many narratives and I think there's going to be more confusion as to what is the truth you know who's is everyone starving or is everyone doing really well or is everyone you know like what what's happening here so i think that once again for me it's coming back to what organization what people are you connected to what's that message what do you trust like like anything where there's confusing and conflicting messages mhm mira what about you how does uh, vision global empowerment deal with that accusation if you if it's been levied against you of the of the brown savior complex I I mean I I personally I don't uh, think brown savior complex is a very um uh, appropriate phrase just because white savior complex is tied to so much narrative around colonization and its history so maybe my academic side doesn't want to um easily transfer that phrase uh but I think what it's pointing to is a power differential that unless an, an organization is willing to interrogate um is is headed for disaster so right the it's it, it's a reality that uh us sitting in the west are um privileged in this position that we're in and the moment we sit get touched ground on sri lanka there's a power differential that plays out 
Um, so uh, one, I guess, practically the way one change in our organization has been that in recent times, we've converted our volunteer model into a um, partnership with universities so that going to Sri Lanka, uh, sorry, not Sri Lanka, Ethiopia so far and soon to be India is an immersive experience as part of a semester long course. So you have a lot of preparation around it. Uh, but um, to do it in, in as part of the volunteer experience is something that I think we, you know, take seriously as far as a lot of education process, as Kumaran mentioned, and um, as Aparna said, I would not like to echo come to its efforts in um, creating an environment where we can have long-term volunteer placements, because that is a huge, you know, uh, change altogether. To spend at least, you know, six months or longer in a, in a place is a very different approach than spending a couple of weeks. And um, I, uh, I guess I want to plug the reality that these kind of conversations, if they're ha having, happening within organizations, um, it's, it's important because I don't think that space is often, is, is, exists. You have to really search hard for it in Sri Lanka, even, you know, among high school students, colleges, uh, and it's, you know, people like Darshan Ambalavarnar who have, you know, an international education really, um, and are globally minded that bring that, that um, conversation to youth and it's so powerful. So again, I had mentioned earlier, Eluwal is a program that is allowing women for one year to engage six months of English training and then six months of simple reflection, which is something that rarely happens um, before they go on, uh, after they've completed the, their A-level. And so I think reflection has to happen there, it has to happen here, and you know, we'll see how things turn out in the decades to come. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the decades to come will, will be that test for uh, for our generation, really, as uh, as members of the Tamil diaspora. Um, go ahead, Kamran. And, and just, I, you know, if, if I didn't say it, I know it's always understood. I mean, we haven't touched on, you know, the fact that all of this work happens under still a, 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 the securitization aspect of Sri Lanka itself, uh, right? Like uh, a lot of this work, uh, I mean, Mira is, a, is an example of that vision. I mean, they can't she can't travel to Sri Lanka and, and that has security implications and, and all of this nonsense, right? So, so there is that whole sort of elephant in the room that we also have to negotiate with on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and, and that is a challenge in itself. I mean, we are having sort of a, you know, inside the house conversation here, but uh, you know, come to it not for a single minute forgets that there is a larger framework that also that we have to operate under and that comes with uh, having very serious conversations about a lot of different topics that impact day-to-day -day programming for us on the ground. Yeah. Um, and, and not all of it, and, and, and not for all those conversations, it's very easy to kind of beat my Tamil chest and be proud. Uh, and if I don't get to do the work, what, what is the point at the end of the day, um, mm -hmm. at least, right, on a, on a personal uh, level? But, but mm -hmm. yeah. That's an excellent point. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of those realities that you all face in your organizations working in Sri Lanka don't hit us uh, back home in our living rooms, you know, when we're just thinking about where we want to give our money and whether every dollar and every cent is going to exactly where we, uh, you know, directly to a family. Um, understanding that bigger picture, that bigger picture is something that, uh, that I, don't, I don't think the Tamil public really fully knows, but uh, it's been excellent hearing from all of you to understand that bigger picture um, and understand what your overarching goals are and, and how this is not just a, like you said, just a 
meal to meal kind of effort. This is uh, this is a, a larger systemic development effort, um, and I really commend all of you for for putting in that emotional labor and that time and that uh, that energy into it. I I can't imagine it's easy. I seriously, literally cannot imagine it. So I have uh, the utmost respect for all of you for doing that. Um, I want to end off by putting it to you again, each of you. If you had to give a one one minute, one 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 and a half minute uh, kind of pitch to potential contributors or donors or people that are on the fence or or have these hesitancies about donating donating through large organizations to Sri, in Sri Lanka or just donating to charities or causes in Sri Lanka in general. If you had to, if you had a message to give to them, what is that message? Um, Abarna, let's start with you. You know, since doing this and since the end of war, how I see is, you know, especially in the North, how I work through the country, but specifically in the North, I really feel we're at a crossroads. I feel like, you know, in this next generation, we don't fix some of the deep-rooted social challenges. This whole race is going to go in a completely different direction. I, I think we have one generation, you know, 20, 30 years to fix the, you know, the, the devastation that's happened and the flow-on effect of this next generation. If they go one generation and we don't, like, change that curve, you know, it would be really sad to see what ends up happening. And so I feel like the Palmera, that's kind of our mission. And that's the burning platform that we share to our donors. So anyone who's listening, you know, yes, the war's over. Yes, COVID's over. And yes, there will be another, there will be another disaster of some sort, you know, but don't wait for that. I think that there's a big, there's a big issue. And I think we all have the responsibility to make sure that that curve, curve shifts. Definitely, definitely. Mira, what's, what's your message to uh, donors or potential donors? I would just reiterate and the cliche that education is the gift that keeps on giving. And uh, when you invest in a person's abilities, their skills, their capacities, uh, you're making a meaningful difference for them. And uh, we've seen the outcome of this. We've seen we've worked with people for a long term, and we we don't often we don't do the one-off, you know, small project here and there. We have. People people in our network who of beneficiaries who have been with us for 10 years and we've seen them grow from a leadership training student to training other uh, students in their trainings and then going on to do a bachelor's degree and even a master's degree. And, and um, you take any number of examples and people who have gone from working at, you know, 2000 rupees a month to then 10,000 and 30,000 and We've seen how that individual has personally changed her family uh, and then also gone into an organization and changed the organization because they're bringing an upgraded set of skills. And so you, you have to invest in people because unless we invest in the people there, our job should be to be uh, obsolete. And so we should be empowering people to develop skills and take on development work in Sri Lanka. Thank you, Mira. Uh, Kumran, what are your what are your thoughts? What's your message to the people? Uh, my my fundraising team hates putting me in front of anyone because I simply can't ask for money, uh, which which I can't do on this thing. It's a, it's a it's a horrible. That tells you how. Yeah. Anyways, um, the only thing I would say is, um, and this might be a little bit of the brown seal coming out, is apathy is non-negotiable. Um, I think every single person 
needs to be involved in some capacity or another. And I don't mean just money. Um, you know, there are tons of young people who don't have the financial means to give, but I always tell them you too have something to give back in terms of your skill, your thought, uh, just your connection to people back home. So, so for me, the big message is to the people out there is uh, apathy is absolutely non-negotiable. The time is now. Um, the, the opportunity, the window that we have is in this generation. Uh, as much as we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, the opportunity to pivot and to make that generational transformation is now. So let's not lose that window. I think, uh, I think that's a good place uh, as any to, to end this conversation. This has been fantastic. Thank you, each of you, for, uh, for spending this last hour with, uh, with me. It's been great hearing all of your insights. Uh, and I hope all our viewers and, uh, and listeners out there over the worldwide interweb took something away from this conversation. Uh, and hopefully, we addressed some questions that you may have understandably had. I know I sure had them. Um, so it's, it's great to be able to hear from uh, Source and hear your thoughts on it. So thank you very much. Um, my name is Jessica Jason Dawson. It's been a pleasure being uh, with all of you. With me is Abarna Raj from Palmyra, Dr. Mira Pathmaraja from Visions Global Empowerment, and Kumar Nivasan from Comduit. Um, until next time, I guess we'll see you guys when we see you. <laughs> Take care. Thanks, Thanks for Thank having you. us. Bye now.